Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. We have with us uh, a very esteemed guest, um, Dr. Athena Pappas. Dr. Pappas is... Uh, the Division Chief of Cardiology at the Warren Alpert School of Medicine of Brown University. She is also the Vice President of the American College of Cardiology, and it is our immense pleasure to have her interview for this podcast uh, to talk a bit more about the article that she contributed to Issue 13.1 for U.S. Cardiology Review. Uh, the title of the article is, Can Early Management of Hypertension by General Practitioners Improve Outcome? Dr. Pappas, welcome on the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's an important topic to discuss. Uh, yes, um, you know, as a matter of fact, hypertension, um, as we know, is the leading modifiable risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And uh, the prevalence is not insignificant. Um, I mean, in your paper, you've mentioned that 29% of adults have hypertension and that number actually goes all the way up to 65% um, with adults um, who are age 60 and older. Um, so, you know, like you said, it's, it's a very important topic. Uh, I'm going to start um, the interview by asking you, you know, why you think is important to treat hypertension? Excellent question. Um, as you mentioned, the prevalence is high and it's one of the um, known modifiable risk factors for cardiovascular disease, including uh, stroke, MI, and heart failure. And we realized that um, from a number of studies, at least 25% of events can be attributable directly to hypertension. And it accounts for more cardiovascular deaths than any of the other modifiable risk factors. So uh, working on this uh, is important to improving the health of our patients. Sure. And um, I just wanted to ask you about um, what you think uh, the effect has been, um, you know, the effect of the recent guidelines which came out, which redefined thresholds for diagnosing benign essential hypertension. You know, how that has uh, impacted the prevalence um, in your practice and um, has it changed practice? Um, when it comes to office visits uh, with patients having hypertension as a comorbidity? Yes, and I think uh, the most recent ACCHA guidelines um, did lower the thresholds for those, uh, for the definition, um, and also for those that uh, would need treatment, uh, which we can talk a little bit more about. And in that um, guideline, they do mention that the overall crude prevalence rate then, if you use a cutoff previously of 140 over 90, was 32% overall. 
and it increases to 46% if you use the newer cutoff of 130 over 80. Uh, so, so we want to know, we know two, two questions, of course, with any sort of a, a cutoff is that increases risk. And then the second piece of information that uh, informed this is treating uh, at that risk, does that lower event rates? And both were true. And uh, that was this evidence was strong enough to change the guidelines. Um, and as you mentioned, also importantly, the prevalence increases dramatically with age. So similarly, the event, the prevalence will increase with this lower cutoff from the 60% range for those over 65 to 70, 80% range. Um, and more so, uh, as we know, in, in uh, people of color. So an important thing for us to work on, and um, it does matter when we see our patients, they often can be a little confused. There's new data that comes out, and it's really incumbent upon us and uh, to synthesize the new data and uh, keep our patients informed of best practices. Uh, great. I think that's a great segue into uh, me asking you about uh, you know, my next question, which is, um, what are the, some of the non-pharmacological approaches to managing high blood pressure in the office? You know, it's a question that I get asked frequently by patients, you know, who've had an acute coronary event and, you know, lo and behold, one of the modifiable risk factors is uh, benign essential hypertension. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, and, you know, as, as all of us know, or at least in my experience, you know, our training when it comes to nutrition uh, is you know, at best mediocre, if not lacking, um, you know, in, mm. in, in our training programs. And, um, you know, I think something societies need to uh, pay more attention to, in my opinion, but, you know, what, how do you break it down to, you know, practical tips for patients um, who have high blood pressure and want to, you know, indulge um, or engage themselves in, um, you know, aggressive risk factor modification. What are the, some of the dietary recommendations you have for patients? Yeah, I think this is the really good point in uh, both in our training uh, and in our probably office practice day to day, um, we uh, are taught and emphasize more the pharmacologic management than the uh, non-pharmacologic or lifestyle interventions. Quite honestly, as, as we all know, it's a lot easier. It's easier for the patient. It's easier for us. Um, the studies are cleaner. Um, studies in diet are uh, notoriously difficult to control all the factors, so that it's not as pure as scientific as we'd like. That being said, we have good epidemiologic data that I think when we see our patient, we can very confidently say, um, that lifestyle changes are as, if not more important than the medications. And what I try to tell patients is that this is uh, in addition to, and that it will help medications work better. And since most patients don't wanna be on medications, that if they're very um, aggressive in their diet, activity, and weight loss, they may need less medications. Um, and we can talk a little bit more in detail about that um, and we can give them data. You know, there's data that um, 
for example, obesity, uh, up to a third of hypertension is related to that. Same with diet and same with activity. Inactivity can increase your risk by twofold. Um, you can tell patients that, you know, the best blockbuster pill out there is uh, taking a walk every day. Uh, I think keeping it um, understandable and straightforward because this makes the newspaper regularly and I think can confuse patients. Um, so the, I think the other piece that's helpful, as you said, uh, we don't get as much training. It's hard to sort of cover all this in an office visit when, say, as a cardiologist, um, we're looking at a number of other risk factors that we're trying to discuss with them. And this is why the team approach is important. So general practitioners um, know their patients well, if not better than us. Um, they uh, see them regularly and can be working on both primary and secondary prevention. Also, thinking about the team, I will often uh, have our nurse practitioner and advanced practice uh, providers see the patients in follow-up to work in a little more detail and length on some of the non-pharmacologic interventions as well, so that they're hearing it from multiple sources, getting nutrition involved and pharmacy involved, um, often having them see a nutritionist because I get confused about diets. <laughs> so again, having an expert on your team to help them. In cardiac uh, rehab, for example, uh, we underutilize that. We know that from our data. And cardiac rehab is more than just exercise. It's also social supports for patients. And uh, they often, uh, at least ours has, uh, and most do, an element of nutritional training and um, giving patients the tools they need. So you're right, it's a difficult thing to, to tackle, the lifestyle modifications. But um, hearing it from your physician, how important it is, is uh, useful. And then making sure a number of other people are helping communicate and reiterate that message is helpful for me and others. Yeah, excellent. Um, I think a team approach is, um, you know, becoming the theme in, in what we do in cardiology because, you know, like you said, it's um, integrated with other um, broad specialties and subspecialties and, you know, the comorbid conditions uh, continue to rise uh, in the patients that we see in our offices. Um, so, uh, no, th those are those are all excellent uh, points. Uh, you know, just to touch base a little bit more uh, on the diet issue, uh, and, and you know, you've had, you have an excellent figure one in the article, uh, which is uh, reprinted uh, with permission. Uh, it, it's an article. Um, uh, I think the figure is from the article by Dr. Wenger, um, in which. Uh, you know, she talks about um, all the um, attributable risks, the attributable individual risks, and you've touched on them. You've touched on obesity. You've touched on physical inactivity, smoking. Um, you know, high blood pressure obviously is is, is the topic of discussion. Uh, when it comes to diet, um, uh, and you know, the American Heart Association is recommending you know five servings of fruits and three servings of vegetables. Um, is there any particular um, method you use in the office uh, in conveying these recommendations to patients, or do you, uh, again, you know, as you said um, in the discussion that we just had, you know, bring in a nutritionist uh, to talk more about, uh, you know, fruit servings and vegetable servings and uh, you know, polyunsaturated fatty acids, because you know, you know, all these exist um, and are very well written and uh, elaborated. But I think when it comes to practical tips in implementing. 
you know, that all these interventions in your diet, in your diet, daily diet, it, it becomes like, it becomes hard even for me. Like, how do I, how do I have three servings of vegetables a day is a question I ask myself every day. Um, so, you know, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, is there any practical tip that you offer to patients, uh, you know, in, in how to in, inculcate these recommendations in their daily routine? That, exactly. Difficult questions and um, hard to fit all of that information into 15 minutes. Um, so I tend to, again, I, I see patients as most cardiologists do, uh, once with a number of issues to tackle. So I will often open it up and tell them in broad strokes what a heart-healthy diet means or what a DASH diet, for example, for hypertension means, and ask if they have questions. And that way, um, try to tease out a little bit that, uh, where their knowledge gaps are. Uh, it's sometimes surprising if you ask a couple follow-up questions uh, patients might say, oh, I, I don't use salt at all. There's no salt shaker on the table, for example, if we stay with salt for a second. Um, and then if you ask what they had for breakfast, they had ham and uh, other things that are loaded with salt. So it can start the conversation. Same with fruits and vegetables, um, asking what they had for breakfast or what they ate yesterday, and then asking them how they tried to involve it. You can start to learn different people, different cultures, different um, way people cook or don't cook might um, help. So everybody's a little different and I find it a little hard to tell people specifically what to do. I think as you mentioned, which is important, here's some broad groups of what you should try to do for number of servings of fruits and vegetables, lower salt, uh, lower fat content. Um, and the other thing which I think has become increasingly important is our sort of cultural awareness and health literacy of patients. Um, you know, a, a number of patients, uh, the health disparities are important. They don't have the same access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, and so trying to help them with that, though that starts to get outside of uh, my realm, but at least understanding that might be one of their limitations. And then I feel like I can't solve that all in 15 minutes. Um, yes. But it might be they're going to see <laughs> a pharmacist or maybe they're going to see the social worker for help with um, access to fresh fruits and vegetables. Um, again, utilizing our nurse practitioners who are very knowledgeable that might have some good tips. And probably everybody has a smartphone these days and and uh, giving them websites, whether it's the... Um, BCC CardioSmart or the AHA websites that are scientific and up-to-date. So they're getting real information that's scientific rather than uh, experts on, so, or, I don't know, social media can be awash with uh, non-experts that people will follow. So I try to steer them in a way they can go read more when they leave their office too. I'm sure. Yeah, no, those are all excellent uh, comments. I mean, I, sort of reassuring that it's not only a struggle for me, but I think it's just a, a struggle in general <laughs> overall, you know, just to incorporate all that information and knowledge for patients in a 15, 20 minute visit. So, you know, again, stressing on the fact that, uh, you know, a heart team approach, not only in, in the procedural aspect of cardiovascular medicine, but also the preventative aspect of cardiovascular medicine is extremely important. So thank you for uh, elaborating on that aspect. Um, my sure. next, I think one yeah. thing that, Oh, can I, just a quick follow-up? Sure. Um, 
you know, you, you mentioned this and it, the more I think about it, I, I, I think we all struggle with that is there's just not enough time to cover everything, but, um, and there's data that supports just planting the seed or hearing from your physician that name something smoking cessation or diet or exercise are important. Um, at least plants the seed and then giving them another option to say, we won't cover all this in 15 minutes, but here's, you planted the seed and then you've given them directions of where to go get more information to support them. Um, because I think in honesty, the best we can do is to sort of plant a seed of how important these things are. Great. I, I like that. Uh, I like that comment, uh, you know, of planting the seed because, you know, it's also very, you know, it's, it's, it's a philosophical comment, but it's also very relevant and very practical in other aspects of, of life, um, you know, just getting a bit philosophical yeah. here, but, you know, just planting the seed is so important because it's like sending a message out to the universe, uh, you know, that, yeah. okay, here, here I am and I'm taking charge of my health and, and my well-being and, um, you know, in, in the hope that the universe will respond and, you know, more often than not, the universe responds. So, you know, thank, mm-hmm. thank you for, thank you for that, uh, planting the seed comment. I, I love it. Uh, that, that brings me to, to my next question, which is, you know, the, the medical management, which is what we're trained to do is how do you manage blood pressure in the office? What are your, uh, agents of choice, the initial first line agents of choice in someone whom you've just diagnosed with benign essential hypertension, um, uh, for example, in a 40, 45 year old uh, versus someone who has had high blood pressure. So this is a two part question. The second part of the question mm-hmm. is someone who's had benign essential hypertension for years is, you know, suboptimally controlled and um, the age is about over 75. Um, what are the thresholds and what are the specific drugs um, or, or medicines that you uh, um, prescribe from the armamentarium of medications that we have available? Uh, and also, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you'll touch on this, but, you know, in part, a lot depends on the comorbidities as well. Um, so maybe if you can delve into this uh, for our listeners, that'll be great. Right. Um, so a number of uh, questions sort of embedded there. The first is that we've lowered the treatment thresholds. Um, and for primary prevention, as you mentioned, you want to use your risk calculator. So when we look at the guidelines, one of the take-home messages, which I found helpful, was um, looking at patients' risk of events and help uh, determine thresholds. So uh, patients have intermediate risk, and we know that often these risk factors are interrelated, obviously then the cutoff of 130 and 80 becomes useful, knowing that uh, normal is now defined at a lower level of 120 over 80. So using that new cutoff and uh, implementing this risk calculator, um, so if you have a 10-year risk of more than 10%, the blood pressure is over 130 over 80, um, that's primary prevention and secondary prevention same cutoff, obviously, because you've had the disease. So with that in mind, um, first drug choice. Uh, people certainly have opinions about this. You know, the, the guidelines do say there's no clear difference uh, without other comorbidities. We can come back to some of the caveats, obviously, whether you use a thiazide, a calcium channel blocker, ACE inhibitor, ARB, um, 
there may not be any one drug that's uh, definitely better than the other. Um, patients that uh, are older might be a little different. Um, African-Americans, patients that have other disease, such as heart failure, reduced ejection fraction, obviously you would follow the uh, heart failure guidelines and choose an ACE or an ARB first. Um, patients that have heart failure preserved ejection fraction, uh, similarly. Uh, diuretics can really be the cornerstone for patients um, uh, with preserved ejection fraction as well. And I think the other issue is um, data that combination treatment, uh, low dose combination uh, may work better um, with fewer side effects. Uh, the trade-off, as we all know, is uh, patient compliance. So some of the combination pills, if affordable, um, are sort of reasonable choices there. Um, so it's really a personalization in some way of the hypertension treatment. Um, shared decision-making is a, a term which is used a lot, but a little more difficult to implement as we know, but having a conversation about the different medications, but emphasizing that treatment's important. Here's the drugs we would choose. Here's the pros and cons to the different medications. Um, and then you, the last thing you mentioned is this, the age-related issue. Um, so the, the goal uh, is still 130 over uh, 80. It's interesting that the caveat in the guidelines, and I think this is helpful, mentions non-institutionalized ambulatory community dwelling adults. And it's a long mm -hmm. sentence. Yeah, but, um, it's a mouthful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think it, it does mean that we, we don't have to apply things. Um, guidelines are meant to guide us. And there's judgment and, and understanding of a patient's lifestyle and where they are and and uh, what are the risks and benefits of treating that and the patient's preference of um, you know, where they are and what, what they're doing. Um, it's a little, I think that's a more challenging group. We know that the benefits are higher, but some of the risks are higher, and that's true with most, most of the geriatric sort of uh, medical treatment that we attempt. Um, yeah, no, those uh, those are all excellent answers. I mean, I think you touched on um, you know all the questions that were embedded uh, in the in the question that I asked. Um, you know, typically what I would do is, um, you know, in a patient um, who has benign essential hypertension who does not have diabetes, or uh, I'm just mm -hmm. getting trying to get into comorbidities here. You know, does not have diabetes or mm -hmm. heart failure. Um, you, I usually would pick a combination of a thiazide and uh, dihydropyridine calcium channel antagonist. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my, my thiazide, my go-to thiazide is usually chlorothalidone. It used to be hydrochlorothiazide, but I've sort of transitioned my practice to prescribing more chlorothalidone than hydrochlorothiazide. Um, and I would give a little, I would give a combination pill, you know, amlodipine. And usually they do come in in these combination pills as well, uh, you know, more often than not, you would find these medications in combination pills. W what is your comment on that strategy? Um, you know, for thiazide and dihydropyridine calcium channel antagonist as first line therapy uh, in patients with uh, high blood pressure. Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a good strategy, and, and what what you're aiming to do is um, lower the risk of side effects and have adequate treatment effect. Um, there are a few patients that could be controlled with a, a single agent, 
Um, and I find that in younger patients, they're um, maybe a little freaked out that there's, quote, something wrong with them and they need medication. And so if you gave them two pills to start with, they might feel overwhelmed, but you can also bring them back frequently and say, we're going to up titrate because we want you to uh, be able to tolerate that and feel better. So starting low and then increasing as you go so they don't develop side effects that make them uh, walk away from the medications. But I think the compliance issue you know, is, is really something we all struggle with and the data is out there that up to a third of patients aren't taking their medications regularly or properly or don't believe it or choose alternative medications instead. So um, I like your approach. I think that the combination medication and it's about communicating with the patient that we can uh, increase or decrease or change medications if they're having side effects, that you're going to work with them, that you're not giving a medication and you see them back in the year. Um, and again, this is where the, you know, the general practitioners are so crucial. Um, they can also work with them and work, as you mentioned, the, the other comorbidities uh, simultaneously. Sure. Um, and then, you know, as as a closing question to this podcast, and, you know, I think it, what has been a great interview, so thank you for your time. Um, my closing question is, you know, as uh, as the vice president of the American College of Cardiology, which, you know, is, is a large organization with many cardiologists, um, where do you see, um, you know, one pain points and two opportunities for, um, you know, a society, for example, like the American College of Cardiology to have an impact on not only cardiologists, but general practitioners in, in managing high blood pressure? Do you see that in the form of education? Uh, do you see that in the form of workshops? Because, um, you know, clearly it's one of the leading um, modifiable risk factor and a significant effect modifier, if you will, uh, for cardiovascular disease. So maybe your closing comments on that would be great for our listeners. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, you know, we sort of talked about the team approach uh, on an individual level with our patients. And the same is true or should be true on a societal level uh, or group level. So cardiology societies, so the ACC needs to collaborate and we work very hard to do that, whether we're coming out with guidelines and try to have um, other key sister societies and partners involved so that it feels that we're speaking for everyone and we're speaking together as one voice. Um, it's certainly confusing for practitioners or patients if there's different guidelines or opinions out there. So I think the first thing is uh, this collaboration and team approaches to society. So working with um, ACP, AHA, um, SKY, uh, ASE, all the other sister societies so that we're speaking with one voice, whether that's for the guidelines that we're coming out with, the education that we're doing, more collaborative education, I think would be beneficial. Um, I'd like to see us do more things like you're doing here, which is uh, bringing things to someone's home rather than having to just fly to a meeting, but webinars, podcasts. There's a lot of ways that people can learn or asynchronous learning, I guess it's called. So I think in the educational world, um, in the current era, there's a lot of, there's a, many more opportunities for us to collaborate and, and educate a, a broader audience. Um, 
So I think that collaboration is important. And I think um, I'd like to see us doing more education together and in uh, sort of new sure. personalized ways. Sure. Oh, terrific. Um, th this has been a terrific interview. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Pappas. It was, it was our pleasure and our honor to have you on the show. And, you know, hopefully we can get you back uh, again uh, for our listeners to um, have some more insights on how the American College of Cardiology at a societal level is uh, making an impact in decreasing the burden of cardiovascular disease. Thanks. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. This is really uh, insightful and uh, enjoyable discussion. Yeah, likewise. Thanks a lot. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.